And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Patricia Engel to the program today. Patricia's novel, Vida, translated into Spanish, was the winner of the Premio Biblioteca de Narrativa Colombiana, Colombia's National Prize in Literature. Her next novel was It's Not Love, It's Just Paris, and her following one, The Veins of the Ocean, won the 2017 Dayton Literary Peace Prize. Her latest, Infinite Country, is published by Avid Reader Press, a division of Simon & Schuster. Patricia, Infinite Country begins with the line, It was her idea to tie up the nun. That's a real strong hook for the beginning of a story. How did that image come to you of a group of girls tying up a nun? Many years ago, when I was deep into writing a different novel, I came across the headline in a very small, obscure online publication, and it was about a group of adolescent girls who had escaped from a juvenile detention center high in the mountains of Colombia. And there were no details, there was no information about um, if they were found or what they were doing there or anything at all. It was just really um, a news bite like that. And the image of these young girls doing something as brave and kind of bold as, as breaking out of a reform school stuck with me. And I thought, well, maybe someday I'll, I'll write about that in some way. And I just kind of archived it in my memory. And over the years, I'd begun working on this other novel, which I knew was going to be a family story, and it's what became Infinite Country. And somehow those two stories, that that detail of the girl breaking out of a a juvenile detention facility, um, those two merged together. How often do those type of real world antecedents do you use in your fiction and how much is whole cloth? I mean, do you rely a lot on these real world incidences and overheard phrases of conversation to include or how do you approach that? I I don't know if rely is the word. Um, I'm inspired by real life continuously. I'm deeply affected by things that I see or hear that I witness or uh, stories that other people tell me. And somehow that also factors into my imagination and the stories become something else and they maybe enter a speculative space. And I start wondering what if this had happened instead and thinking of other outcomes. So I'm, I'm always looking at life in, in not an analytical way, but in a, a reflective way, an introspective way, and trying to unfold moments as I see them. So these girls are escaping from where? In Infinite Country, they're escaping from a sort of um, detention center for um, young girls who are on the verge of more serious criminal behavior as they get older. So it's uh, it's uh, the the main character Thalia, who is the one that you you witness escaping in that opening scene. She describes it as a prison school for for youth offenders. When they escape, she decides to go her own way. She does not hang around with the other girls that were in the the jailbreak, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Thalia is, um, she's at a critical moment. Really, it's her last chance to break out of this school where she's been sentenced to several months because she needs to get back to Bogota uh, where a plane ticket is waiting for her 
to fly to the United States and be reunited with her mother and her brother and sister, whom she has not seen in over 15 years since she was a baby, when her mother, who at that time was left as a single parent to take care of the three children, had to make the very difficult choice to send the newborn baby back to Colombia to be cared for by her, her mother and father who had been deported. So Infinite Country tells the story of this family separated by, by borders and time and distance and uh, uncertainty and how a family sustains itself across those barriers. Now we do learn why Talia was in the juvenile detention center and it was pretty gruesome. Well, I don't know if I would describe it as gruesome. Uh, it's, I mean, I've certainly heard worse stories about other places, but it's just, it's a it's a pretty serious place. But it's also a place where there's an idea of uh, rehabilitation or second chances. The girls are given therapy classes. They're keeping up with their education in some kind of loose way, and um, there's this hope that the girls will overcome their bad behavior while they're there. And of course, uh, there's, you know, some girls are not at all interested in that. No, I meant the circumstances that led her to being there. Oh, the circumstances. Well, that's also up for interpretation. That is there because she committed a crime. There's no question. She committed a crime and I won't give it away here, but uh, it's something that different people might read in different ways. Some people might, um, you know, feel that it's something that's justified or done in the name of justice. And uh, as Daria believes that she's, you know, she has done something um, out of defense for in, and in response to another violent act. But yeah, that's how she ends up there. That's why she is sent away. It's a, a very Old Testament approach and one with very permanent ramifications for the person she was punishing. Yes, absolutely. And it does bring into question about um, the things that we do that we don't see as, as permanent acts, the things that we don't see as being consequential, how every decision that we do make does have a consequence one way or another. So we then travel back to the 90s at the beginning of the family's history with her mother's life in Bogota, what was her family's circumstance back in the 90s there? Well, the, the 1990s were um, a particularly challenging time in Colombia's history, especially a violent time. And uh, as a result of that, that instability, it also um, created a lot of economic uncertainty, particularly for the younger generation in search of opportunity. So the novel explores the meeting of Thalia's parents, Elena and Mauro, who meet as teenagers and fall in love, as many people do, and uh, bit by bit start making a life together. And like most young people, they get curious and they have an adventurous spirit and they decide to uh, take that adventurous spirit abroad. And they get very lucky, as was not that uncommon at that time, and get tourist visas to travel to the United States with their uh, newborn baby, Karina, their eldest daughter. Elena has a very stable home life, although her father is gone. Her mother owns a laundry, and they're doing well enough. But Mauro, his family circumstance was not easy, and it really affected the way he looked at life from then on. 
Yeah, I mean, they they don't actually ever marry, but they are as, as you know, united as people can be when they have a family together. So yeah, uh, Elena is raised by her mother and they run, uh, they operate a lavanderia together and they own their own home, a family home. And Elena's life is stable because of the love that her mother Perla, provides for her. Mauro, on the other hand, was raised also by a mother and in a house with an absent father. And he had a much more difficult upbringing and he was sent by his mother away to the Savannah to work uh, shoveling graves um, for a cemetery. And then when he comes back to the city, she also casts him off and he spends a great amount of time on the streets and, and sleeping wherever he can and, um, and accepting the charity of strangers until he finds a job at a market called Paloquema in Bogota. And that's where he meets Elena, who comes to the market to do her shopping. And little by little, they build a relationship, just a sort of casual friendship that leads to more. Uh, but he protects her by not telling her all the details of his painful past. But also that painful past is why he's so motivated to seek better opportunity elsewhere. This is around the time, and it was a, a long period of insurgency from the FARC, in Colombia, but that really does not play into the story too heavily. No, uh, Infinite Country is a story of just one family going about their lives. But of course, Colombia is a family that has suffered at the hands of over a half century of civil armed conflict and so much displacement and all the violence that goes along with that and instability and uh, homegrown terrorism. So um, while they're in the city and not on the front lines, there is a trickle-down effect to all this violence and uh, the, the entire country experienced. It casts a very long shadow. And just uh, in the relationship of these two individuals, you can see how it affects them. Why did uh, Mauro and Elena decide to leave Colombia and why did they settle on the United States? Well, you learn in the book that Spain is obviously uh, the more obvious first choice because of the common language, but they're not able to get visas there. And so then they try the United States and they are lucky enough to get visas, though separate, not as a married couple, they get them separately, um, tourist visas to go to the United States. The idea that they have is was an idea that many people have, which is that they're just going to explore and uh, see an exciting new country, work a bit, save some money to bring back home um, to help pay for the expenses back in Bogota. They do not have the long view of this uh, of this endeavor. They don't go with the intention of being immigrants. They don't go with the intention of overstaying their visas. They really just go with the spirit of exploration as so many people do, but with every intention to come back home. Maro said to Elena, maybe we are creatures of passage meant to cross oceans just like the first infectors of our continent in order to take back what was taken. It's just a lovely line. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, um, out of there speaking to, to reality that a lot of people forget, which is that the human species is a migratory species like so many other. It's a, a human instinct to move, to pursue more opportunity, to pursue better resources in order to ensure the safety and survival of its offspring, right? It's, it's an entirely natural impulse. Every one of us are immigrants going back to the, the earliest days in Africa. 
Yeah, and something that has come up recently is, you know, a lot of people don't realize how vast the continent of the United States is. And we take for granted that people become bicoastal, as they say, right? A person living on the East Coast would not think twice about moving to the West Coast. And that manner of distance in other places is the equivalent to crossing several nations. So people essentially migrate within the United States all the time. And we don't think twice about it because it's not delineated by borders. But there are so many different cultures in America, and we sometimes overlook and just call ourselves Americans, but there are distinct regional and even class cultures within that. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely true. And the title of the book, Infinite Country, implies a country so large that if it's infinite, then it therefore no longer has borders. Yeah, the title is, you know, something that comes up in the book. I won't say where, but it is something for each person to really um, contemplate and explore their own definition of what that means and what that means to live within the confines of something that has not been decided by you or not. Now, at times when in America, Mauro and Elena want to return to Colombia, but it seems they never both want to do it at the same time. Yeah, that's not an unusual experience for people who um, make a new life in a new country together. The process of emigrating is very complex and very nuanced. A lot of people have this idea that it's just a decision that is made and you don't really look back when in reality, it's quite the opposite. There's a lot of doubt. There's wondering if you made the right choice. There's, of course, homesickness and the loss of the entire life that you had before you left. So those moments hit Mauro and Elena often at different times. Um, very often they're, they are uh, supporting the other, you know, through their, through their difficult moments. And sometimes they're keeping those moments private to themselves in order to, to focus on their collective goal of making that new life together in the U.S. And there are times when the reality is too much for Mauro to deal with and he escapes into the bottle and alcohol. Sure, as many people do. <laughs> but it becomes very problematic for the family. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mauro is, uh, has had a very lonely, a lonely upbringing. And at a certain point, he found refuge in drinking and to varying degrees uh, over the course of his life. But the challenges of that new life in the United States, particularly uh, during the period at which those years in the novel are set, which is at the turn of the millennium, which was a, a changing time for the United States, for those of us who remember, particularly in how foreigners were framed for public perception. So Mauro has moments where he's struggling with the pressures of uh, being the breadwinner for the family, this growing family, and he drinks. And it becomes more problematic as time goes on. And it's something that he has to confront in a very serious way after he's deported and sent back to Bogota. Now, we see both Mauro and Elena, how they deal with being raised by single mothers and the difference in, in what encouragement and support can do for someone's life. 
And then we also see another compare and contrast between two of their children in Talia, who was born in the United States, but then sent back to live with Elena's mother, Perla, in Colombia, and then Karina, who was born in Colombia, but very soon was moved to the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really um, explores the nature on what creates an individual and how different families are made up and also how one can break away from those things that they were raised with and create an entirely new incarnation and meaning of what it means to be a family with somebody else. So we learn that Karina is the narrator of the story. Why did you pick her perspective as the one to give us this family history? Well, Karina is the family chronicler. She is the truth teller. She's the one concerned with telling the family's story. Um, And over the years, I've come to realize that a lot of families have a person like this, who's the great observer of a family, who is the one interested in preserving the knowledge of everyone's tales. And over time, those become the people that others will come to, to ask for those stories. And she compels her younger brother, Nando, to contribute to the story in first person. Why did you choose to have her compel him to do that? And was it difficult to find his voice after writing in Karina's voice for all this time? I worked on on the voices for a good long time before I even sat down to write a page of Infinite Country. But you find out at a certain point that all the storytelling that has come up to that point, which some people have mistaken for a third person narrator, was actually Karina the whole time telling the story of her sister, of her brother, of her mother, which you find out has been told to her. And she's retelling those stories the same way we retell other stories that we've heard and been told. The reason why Nando, her brother, um, steps in to tell his own story is because she has asked him to. He's also uh, reluctant to hand his story over to his sister. It's just his personality. So he, uh, he has made the agreement to write the story down for her so that she can include it in the family story. How accurate do we know that Karina's version of Talia's flight from Colombia? How, how do we know that she's relaying that in a, a genuine and accurate way? Well, how do we know that any story that we hear is accurate? <laughs> You know, it's uh, this is the story that's been told to her. But I mean, every story that we have ever been told, even those that are documented, are subject to somebody's biases. Now, in the process of Talia's flight from Colombia, she has two very vastly differences in meeting two strange men on her path. Mm-hmm. One is a, a French national who's ready to take advantage of her, and then there's a local youngster who has the kind of ominous name of Aguja. I guess it means needle. He's a little bit more chivalrous than his name would suggest. Mm -hmm. It's up for the reader to make what they want out of that. But certainly, um, Dalia is a 15-year-old girl who was traveling a great distance through the Andes Mountains on her own with nothing except the clothes on her back. So um, obviously, there are risks involved, and you get a sense of what those are and really where... um, She is taking her destiny into her own hands, but also she's really got to take care of herself in a way she has never had to before. And Aguja kind of confronts her and asks, why does she want to leave Colombia? And Mm -hmm. why does she not want to engage with this country in which she was raised, although not necessarily born? What are his reasons that she should stay? 
Well, a lot of people, contrary to what you know, the media sometimes tries to convey, a lot of people have no interest whatsoever in immigrating. A lot of people do never want to leave their homeland uh, because they have great love for it, even if they live in a place that is uh, experiencing difficulties and challenges, and maybe they could have a, a better um, life elsewhere, so to speak. So Aguja is one of those people who cannot understand why somebody would want to leave the land of their family, the land of their ancestors, especially a place as beautiful and with such diverse um, ecology as Colombia, as complicated as it is, it's really a spectacular country. And he tells her that he cannot understand why she would want to go to a country of strangers, especially a place with such you know, uh, frightening headlines as the United States, violence and crime and armed civilians, etc. These are the things that alarm him that he mentions to her. In German, there's a concept of Heimat. It's kind of like this love and connection with one's home region. Is there a similar concept in Spanish or in Colombia in particular? Well, there's amor de patria, you know, love of one's homeland. But even though we have different ways to phrase this, I think it's something that most people can connect to, even if they're unable to articulate it. One of the most interesting aspects of Infinite Country are the tales that are told, especially by Mauro. They're kind of folk tales about how things came to be, how landscape is and how the night is and such. Do these relate to the stories that we tell ourselves to kind of affix a narrative to our lives? Well, a story is a story, no matter if you want to call it a folktale or a myth, or if you want to call it a history from a history book. Uh, that's the whole nature of storytelling. Uh, I'm a storyteller, so of course that's something that fascinates me and I find great value in it. Um, the stories that Mauro connects to are those from ancestral knowledge and traditional history in Colombia that are very specific to that land and that landscape. In the Andes Mountains on the equator, high altitude, it's a very specific region. And um, he finds great comfort in these stories and understanding the origins of mankind and how and the role that the human species plays in relation to other animal species on this planet. So that's how we derive meaning from everything, really. It's a question of the stories that we have been told, the stories we internalize, that we repeat. Uh, and that's the nature of how an individual comes to define themselves, how families decide what kind of family they are. Nations decide the kind of nations they are. We hear very often that phrasing, this is not who we are. Well, how do we know who we are? Oh, because of the stories we've been telling, right? And so when a person leaves their homeland for another location and the stories that you have internalized over your young life are no longer describing the land you're in. What is the conflict there that Mauro feels when he's in the United States? Well, just because you leave your homeland doesn't mean you take your stories with you. In fact, they take on more importance. This is something that a lot of families that are in the process of emigrating or who have it in the very recent past know very well. Stories become very important. The story of who we were before we left compared to the story of who we are now. And very often when you've left the homeland, the only thing you take with you are your stories. Now, at one point, Karina, our narrator, talks about how she hates the term undocumented. 
Why does she rankle so much at this word? Well, the English language falls short in so many ways, and this term undocumented, of course, is uh, is just a single word that's applied to so many different circumstances. In fact, there's, there's an, a spectrum of things that are folded into that some uh, into that word. Uh, it's just you're, according to this word undocumented, it is, implies that the only alternative is to be documented, when in fact there are infinite possibilities in between. Well, and it's an irony that that word was started to be employed to be less offensive than previous terms to describe. I'm the not status. saying it's offensive at no. all. I'm just saying that it's uh, it's weak <laughs> in its specificity. What other possible terms? Let's go for the specific term of Elena and Mauro. What term do you think would be good to use for their situation? They've overstayed. And also the reason why they have overstayed is because they, is, they are not able to renew, right? So, um, you know, a lot of times these, these terms sort of put the onus on the individual when in fact uh, uh, laws change constantly. So an individual who in fact might've been promised an amnesty or an asylum one year and then something happens in the next day, that's no longer available to you. It is very chaotic how policy can change so much from administration to administration. Mm-hmm. Or even within administrations. Well, with the positive response that you're getting to this, and you've gotten such great honors in the past for your writing, do you feel an extra responsibility in, I know you have the responsibility to yourself to keep the quality high and your intent where you want to, but do you feel an extra societal responsibility since you've been given all these honors from in America and in, in South America as well? I'm not sure. You know, um, I write every book that I write the same way that I wrote my first book when I had no idea anybody would ever read it, which is um, really um, to accompany myself to create characters that I would want to get to know and as a sort of offering to other people to hopefully create future friends for them or show them a window into a life that is um, either a reflection of the world that they know or perhaps a world that they would want to know. So I try to to maintain that value system in, in everything that I do. Of course, from book to book, Infinite Country is my fourth book. I try to challenge myself in new ways, artistically and creatively. and. And obviously, with the passing of time, I'm older, so I have different interests and different preoccupations as well that I explore in my work. Again, with the title Infinite Country, oftentimes when an author will approach a family history that covers over 20 years, you'll hear the phrase, a sweeping epic. But Infinite Country is lean and muscular and just barely clocks in over 200 pages. Why was this compact approach the one that you took? Well, I love lean, compact books, as you described them, Um, but I also I wanted this book in particular, even though it's expansive, as you mentioned, I wanted it to feel very urgent, very essential. And so uh, when I was writing it, there were moments where my drafts were much longer, but uh, I went then I went through the process of carving it down and uh, removing the scaffolding, so to speak, to to really make it feel like every phrase every every pairing of words um, could not have been another way and was really serving the story in very specific ways. I often ask this, even though I think it's a fairly unfair question, after you've just have put out one work, what are you working on now? 
Well, Infinite Country will be followed by a short story collection, and that's uh, pretty much finished. And those are stories that have been written over the past uh, 10 or 12 years or so. And have they all appeared elsewhere, or are some going to be original to the collection? Uh, both, yeah. Many appeared elsewhere, and uh, there will likely be original pieces as well. Part of this story, was it in Plowshares, had originally appeared? Yeah, an early excerpt um, appeared in Plowshares. And were there many changes from that original idea from the, the story that no, got No, the idea was the same. Um, of course, you know, there, there were changes in the writing. There was polishing that happened. That excerpt was published a couple of years ago already. So, so the book changed a bit, of sh- a bit of shape since then. Well, Patricia, I want to thank you so much for taking a few minutes to speak with us today on Book Talk. It has been a pleasure and continued great luck in your publishing and writing. Thank you so much. I so enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you. Patricia Ingle is the author of the novel Infinite Country, which is published by Avid Reader Press, a division of Simon & Schuster. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the city of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, All rights reserved.